Has there ever been a time in your life when you've wanted something good, but maybe for not the best reason? I, mean, I think we can probably all say yes to that. There's always been a time where there's something we wanted, and it was a good thing, but maybe the reason behind it wasn't the best. I think there comes a time in, in all of our lives when we become aware of what's going on around us. And for me, that was about age nine, 1990. Super Mario World just came out, right? I needed to get that Nintendo. The Jordan 5s just released, and, you know, everybody wanted to be like Mike. And so I wanted that Nintendo, and I wanted those Jordan 5s so bad, not because it was going to make me a better basketball player, because I've always been a little height challenged, and not because I was any good at video games, but because I wanted it because I knew my friends would think I was cool. You guys been there? You want something good, maybe not for the best reason, though, because you want somebody to say something good about you. I think we've all done that, right? And it goes with us the higher we grow. It doesn't just have to be when you're nine or you finally become aware of the people around you. I think it happens at work. You take that promotion, you move to that new company, not necessarily because it's a better fit, but because you get a better title, and you want to be able to say that you are such and such. You, you end up wanting to get a new car, not because it gets better gas mileage, but because it looks sweet in the driveway, right? And you want your buddies to want to go ride with you in your new four-door Jeep with the top off, because it's Colorado. Or it's time to get a new house, because you want to know that your friends are going to be impressed when they come over. Right? Those things are good things. A new car is good. A new house is good. These things are great. But what's the motive behind them? What's the reason behind them? I don't know about you guys, but one of the things I've always struggled with in my life is FOMO. Anybody else? You guys know what I'm talking about? Anybody else have a little FOMO? For those of you guys that don't know, it's fear of missing out, right? So now you guys can all speak, speak hip like me. But I'm, so the idea of like FOMO, right, is this is like your fear of missing out. And I feel like I've lived my whole life with this fear of what happens if somebody does something and I'm not there. And so what I end up doing is taking vacations I shouldn't take, going to concerts and games I probably shouldn't go to, all for the sake of being able to say, I did it. Those are good things, yet maybe not the best reasons. And today as we get to 1 Samuel chapter 8, we're going to see that the people of Israel, God's people, they ask for something that could be good, but they ask for it for the wrong reason. They, they go to God and they ask God for something that in itself is not wrong, but ultimately the reason was wrong. And what we're going to see is a fallout from their choice, and that fallout's going to lead to them, them wrecking themselves physically, emotionally, and spiritually. And I want us to see this as a cautionary tale for us not to fall into that same trap. So if you have your Bibles, let's look here. 1 Samuel chapter 8. We're going to see that, um, that, that God's people are, are in what we call the time of the judges. So if you were with us last week, we see God's people were in the, this time of judges where they had moved from Moses to Joshua, and then now they were in this period of time where there really was not any true leader. It was kind of tribalism, and God would raise up a judge and that judge would help defeat the enemies. And this went on for about 300 to 450 years. At the end of this period of time, God raises up a man named Samuel. Some of you might know Samuel. Samuel was the little boy who heard God's voice when he lived with Eli the priest. His mom was Hannah. And Samuel was a great ruler of the people. He was a great judge. Now, when you think of judge, I, I kind of said this last week, don't think of judge as a political figure. Think more as a kind of a tribal war leader. Well, Samuel kind of changed that. He was a priest, and he was the person that the people would come to when they needed to make decisions, and he led the people well. 
Well, what we see, though, is that over the course of time, Samuel starts to get a little older, and so he puts his sons as judges to help try to govern the people, and we see things start to go awry. Notice this. First Samuel chapter 8, notice what's going on. Uh, verse 1, it says this. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judge over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his secondborn son was Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in the way in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. And so his sons were not doing a very good job. The people were getting upset about this. And so we see the people gather to God. Notice this, verse 4. Then all the elders of Israel together gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old. Probably not something you want to hear, right? You just... You never want somebody to tell you that, right? Behold, you are old, right? But I mean, Samuel looked in the mirror. I'm sure he had to figure this out. He says, behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us, judge us like all the nations. So what's bad about this? What's bad about asking for a king? Well, nothing really. Actually, God had it in mind that he would at some point give them a king. If you go back to Deuteronomy 17, don't turn there. You can look it up later. God actually gives them kind of a prescription for what it looks like when they will have a king and what kind of king it should be and what some of his characteristics and attributes should be. So it wasn't that they necessarily weren't supposed to have a king at some point. It just was that it wasn't time yet. And I think there's a principle we see here that God wants to show us that we, we lose our direction when we get ahead of God. The, the people weren't ready yet. God had created this, this, this new people, this new kingdom that they were to live in, and God was their king. At one point, he would give them a king, but it wasn't time yet. And so the people, though, they got ahead of God. They said, God, we want a king now. We don't want to wait any longer. It's time for us to have a king now. They got ahead of God. And I wonder, has there been times in your life when you've done that too? I think we can probably all say yes. But there's been times in our lives when we got ahead of God. Where we, we, we think, God, I know you have this for me in my life, and I feel like there are these, 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 these things that you've, you've promised or that you know it's good for me, and yet, God, I want them now. Or we'll say, God, I'm going to give you a year, and if you don't give it to me in, by next May, I'm going to go get it on my own. Like, I think we could probably all look back at our lives and see we've done that sometimes with jobs. We've done that relation, with relationships. We've done that with things. You feel like, God, I, I feel like you, you want for me to, to be married or, or to, to you know, be in this relationship. And so I rush out and I get into a relationship that's not good and it's not healthy for me because I got ahead of God. I no longer wanted to wait on, on his timing. And, and often what, what happens is we experience heartburn because we got ahead of God. It wasn't that it was a bad thing that we did or that we wanted. is that we just didn't wait. God wanted us to wait. You know, I heard one pastor say that it seems like God is always late. But I think the reality is that God is, is rarely early, but he's never late. And so that's what these people, they, 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 the people of Israel, they, they looked around and they said, we want this now. We want somebody to lead us now. We, 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 we want something different now. And God said, you need to wait. They said, no, we want it now. Notice why, though. They got out in front of God, but notice why. Look back at verse 5. It tells us why. They said, now appoint for us a king to judge us like what? All the nations. You see, when God rescued the people of Israel out, he said, look, I want you to be distinct. I want you to be a kingdom of priests. It means I want you to represent me. I want you to be salt and light and all these beautiful things to these neighbors around you. But they lost perspective on that. 
And now they wanted to be like everybody else. They wanted to be like all the other nations. Here's the second thing I think God shows us here is that we lose our perspective when we mirror the world. Like we, we look around and we see that God calls us to be different and to be distinct, but when we try to mirror around us, we look around and say, well, that, that looks fun. Or they seem to really be having a good time. We, we lose our perspective because now we are just mirroring the world around us. And, and I want to say that we have a temptation to fall into this. I think we, we all can have our hearts grabbed by culture and the world and things around us. And we can look and say, well, that looks really fun. And those people seem to be living it up. You guys ever been there? Right? You're like, they're not going to church on Sundays. They're not giving money to, the, to, to ministry or mission trips. They're just living it up. And they seem so happy. And they seem like they have it all together. Yet, I'm missing out. And so I, I think we have this temptation we, we fall to. We say, well, they're going out and they're partying and they're not being faithful and they're having just so much fun. But what we don't see is below the surface level. They are dry and miserable with no joy and no peace, but their Insta page looks great, right? They're living it up, right? They're not really. They're mirroring the world and, and God is warning us all throughout the world, to know, all throughout the Bible, don't do that. Because you lose perspective. You begin to fail to see that God called you to be distinct. And this was what Israel's problem was. They were looking around. They looked around at the other kingdoms around them, the other nations around them. And they saw that they had kings and they had armies and they had sweet chariots with great horses. And they were doing the thing. And Israel here just kind of feels like they're floundering without a leader. And so they say, God, give us a king so we can be like the other nations, that he can lead us in war and battle. And what God is saying here, and I think he's saying the same thing to us. He's saying this, you're missing the big picture. You're missing it. You're missing what I'm calling you to do. We've been in this series since January now, walking through the entire Bible. And one of the purposes is we want to be able to see the themes that are running through the entire pages of Scripture. And one of the themes is this, that God is reestablishing his kingdom. God has a plan to build a kingdom here on earth, and that was his plan from the very beginning. And this is one of the things that we continue to see as we go through the story, the greater story, is that God has a plan to reestablish his kingdom. And this is what the greater story was really all about. Let me ask you, where's the first time in the Bible that you see this idea of of kingdom or, or ruling? Anybody know? What page of the Bible do you see this idea on? The first page. Unless you have a large print Bible, because you need glasses, and then it's on the second or third page. But for most of us, smaller, medium-sized print, you guys with the really good eyes, maybe it's on page one, right? It's the idea of that God is creating the beautiful world around us. We see in Genesis chapter one that God creates this beautiful universe. He creates this beautiful world. He gives it purpose, and then he takes it with so much potential, and he creates people to help build a kingdom. Look with me, Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 and 28. Some of you will remember this when we talked some about this back in January. It says this, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, listen, here it is, be fruitful and multiply, have babies, fill the earth, subdue it, and have what? Dominion. That word dominion means to rule. It means to king. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so God says, I want you to help me rule this kingdom. Now, if you are a runner, if you run, you are a runner. If you bike, you are a 
biker, although you probably should clarify which kind of biker, especially if you show up to a costume party, you should definitely do that. If you, are, if you rule, you are a ruler. You guys are on it today. Now, you don't walk outside to the backyard to the squirrels and say, I rule you. Like, what are they going to do, right? It's going to look at you in the runoff. But, but it, it's the idea that we, we, are, we are drawn in to be co-rulers with God. So let's say you work at a coffee shop, one of the 150,000 coffee shops that Denver has, right? And you work at the coffee shop, and you walked up to your employees and said, I rule you. Now, based on your personality, they might think that's true, right? Um, but most likely, there's an owner. And you might just be the shift manager, but you are helping the owner rule, right? You're helping them co-rule on their behalf. So think about the Bible. The Bible is a story about kingdoms. God starts his world and he builds a kingdom and he creates you and me as people and he puts us as his image bearers and we're supposed to help him co-king the rule. We're supposed to help him co-rule this world that we're in. But God gives us a choice. We can allow God to help define what's good and bad, what's evil and right, or we can try to make it on our own. So what happens? Well, get to page like six of the Bible, and we see that man decided to take a hostile takeover of the kingdom. That Adam and Eve decided that they were going to listen to their own. They got deceived. They decided they're going to listen to their own version of what's good and bad, and they end up doing a hostile takeover. It's like the mutiny of the black pearl, right? Like they just take it from God because God gave them the choice. And so we, we see right here, we're left with this tension. Like, what's God going to do? He started a kingdom, and now the kingdom's been taken away. But we see right then that God makes a promise that he's going to reestablish his kingdom. And so if you've been following along in the story, he create, picks a family, Adam, or Abraham and Sarah, and he said, through this family, I'm going to reestablish my kingdom. It's through this family, I'm going to bless the world. And we see that family gets big and grows and grows, and then the famine hits, and they go to Egypt, and they end up becoming slaves. But we see God say, I'm not done yet. I'm reestablishing my kingdom. So he, he rescues the people of Israel. He leads them across the Red Sea. He puts an end to Pharaoh who wanted them to live under his kingdom. And then God reestablishes his kingdom with his people on the other side of the Red Sea. Where do you think the first, so we know we've already determined page one is where the first picture of kingdom is. Where do you think the first reference to God being king is? Exodus chapter 15, actually. Exodus 15, we see the people in Moses' song, after they cross the Red Sea for the very first time, God is declared king, rightful king. Look, look at this with me. Exodus 15, verse 1, and then verse 18. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he is triumphant gloriously. The Lord will reign forever and ever. The Lord will reign. That's king language. The Lord will king forever and ever. God, so, so how did God prove his royal authority of these people? He rescued them. He liberated them from slavery and bondage, and he brought them into this new kingdom now, this new kingdom he is building and that he is reestablishing. And God becomes king as he rescues people and he confronts evil. So we see God takes them then to the mountain. If you've been with us through our Exodus series, God takes them to the mountain and he gives them the, uh, really what it looks like to live in this new alternate kingdom now that's going to be very different from anything they've ever known. And he takes them to the mountain and he gives them the Ten Commandments and God sets up a theocracy. It means that God is king, that God is their king and the people were to be co-rulers. And then we see it get out of balance, 1 Samuel 8. That God came in, rescued his people and then it's already out of balance just a few hundred years later. And in 1 Samuel 8, we see that these people, 
they don't want to live under God's kingdom and reign. They want to do it the way they want to do it. They want a different king. So, so notice, look back at 1 Samuel chapter 8 then. So, so they tell Samuel, Samuel, we want a different king. And Samuel takes the news pretty difficult. Notice what Samuel says here in verse 6. But this thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, good thing to do when you're displeased, right? He goes to God, and the the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people and all they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they've rejected me from being king over them. You see God saying, look, they're not rejecting you, Samuel. They're rejecting me as king. They want want a different king. They want a king that's going to do things their way. They don't want to live in the kingdom that I have created for them to live. I don't think they realized it, but wanting to be like the, the world, wanting to mirror the world was just saying, God, your way isn't good enough for me. Do you ever say that? You ever found yourself saying that too? Like, God, I, I know you tell me in, in your word what the best blueprint for my life is and what relationships should look like and how I should spend my money and how I should, should, should navigate life and relationships, but God, I just don't think your way is best for me, actually. Jesus says in John 10, 10 that he came to give us life, that the enemy comes to steal. But yet sometimes we believe that the enemy, his way is better, that that's what's going to lead us to joy and peace. And when we say to God, God, actually, I think this way is better. I think culture has it right. Then I think we're saying to, to God, to God, I just don't believe your way is good enough for me. But here's the question. It's like what the great theologian Sheryl Crow said. If it makes you so happy, then why are you so sad, right? So we look at culture and we say, that seems so good. Well, how is it good if it's just so bad. So I don't know that we realize it, but I think we're saying, God, your plan isn't good for my life. And if we say that, either we don't know what we're saying or we missed it because we either got out in front of God or we lost our perspective because we were mirroring the world. And so I want you to ask yourself, where, where have you fallen into that? Where have you said, no, God, I'm sorry, my way's better than yours. So, so God tells Samuel, okay, Samuel, listen to what they say. They're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. And Samuel says, but make sure to, beware, to, to warn them of what's gonna happen when they do get a king. And so notice what Samuel says in verse nine. Samuel says, okay, this is what, this is, yeah, God says, now then obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. And so for the next several verses, we see Samuel telling the people, okay, guys, you want a king, but here's what's gonna happen. They're gonna take your sons and your donkeys and send them to war. It's kind of weird that he put sons and donkeys together, but I guess there's some correlation. Your sons and donkeys, he's going to use as soldiers in the war. He's going to take your, your daughters, and they're going to work for the kingdom. He's going to take your land, the best choice land, the best choice fruit, the best choice animals, and he's going to tax you. He says, is that what you want? Sounds like it is. And so we see God warn them, and he warns the people of what can happen. Earlier this summer, I shared with you guys, we took a trip out east, and we went to Boston, and we, we did the Freedom Trail, which if you guys have been to Boston, the Freedom Trail is, like, I think it's like four and a half miles long um, from Boston Commons to the USS Constitution, and we made it like a half a mile, right, because we got three kids, and it was hot, and we needed ice cream, you know, just general things, right, when you're going on vacation. We made it like a half a mile, but the, we did make it to the Old North Church. Um, here's a picture of the Old North Church. It's really beautiful. You had to pay like $15 to go in, so I just took a picture and just stood outside and called it good. I could read about it on Wikipedia later. But the Old North Church is famous because this is where they had 5,000 people crammed into the Old North Church. And Sam Adams, the original Sam Adams, not the one that you guys know, the original Sam Adams 
He then said the British are coming and we need to basically fight. And that's where the Boston Tea Party really spawned, right? And so we, we see that they did something really, they said to King George, we don't want this tax on our tea and we don't want you taxing all of our stuff. We want to do it our way. And I think we're glad we did, right? We're kind of glad that we did. We, I love America. I think the U.S. is the greatest nation in the world. I think democracy works. But there's always give and take with these things. There's always give and take. And so we see that a decision made that said, we don't want to pay taxes from, from King George and the, the, the Brit, British monarchy. We see that where we are today, and the, the, the truth is, we do live in a great country, but government just naturally wants to get bigger. Government just naturally wants to grow. And taxes are a burden. We all pay taxes. I mean, depending upon what your, ta- your, your income rate is, you guys pay somewhere between 10 to 25, 30% tax. Do you know in Sweden, the flat tax rate for everybody in Sweden is 30%? And then for many, there's another 20% tax on top of that. So most people in Sweden are paying 50% tax. 50 cents on every dollar just goes to tax. So I, there's a lot of good that comes from, from, from government, right? There's a lot of good. God says, I'm, I'm going to have a king, but he's going to tax you. He's going to take your land. He's going to do all these things. And I just think there's this reality that, that comes from uh, this idea that Israel fell into the belief that politics was the answer. Israel believed that politics and a king was the answer. And I think they learned, and it's something I hope we learned too, that elected leaders aren't our savior, that you cannot legislate the heart, that what they needed in 1000 BC is the same thing we need today. And that's the King Jesus in our lives and in our churches and in our world. That's what we need. And so we see right here this this, this picture that, that God is warning them that I need to be first. I need to be the king that's first in your life. There's nothing wrong with government. Government can be very good. God had a plan for government. But God says, you guys aren't ready yet. I'm the king. And so Samuel warns the people. Look at verse 19. It says this, but the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, nope, but there shall be a king over us that we may also be like all the nations that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battle. So what happened? Well, if you know the story, God gives them what they want. He leads Samuel to go find a man named Saul. Saul's this good-looking fella. He's tall, handsome, tall, drink of water. And they find him to be king. Saul becomes king. And everybody's like, we got our guy. And then just a few chapters later, five chapters later, Saul fumbles it. Doesn't wait on God. Goes and fights the battle. Next battle, God tells him what to do. He doesn't do what God tells him to do. And all of a sudden, God's going, this guy. This guy is not the right guy. And everything starts to fall apart. God, at that point, turns to Samuel and says, Samuel, it's time to go anoint the real king, King David. He's a shepherd boy. Go find him. We'll talk about him next week. And Saul finds out about David. David's a great warrior. Saul gets jealous, tries to kill David. David's on the run. It's a complete mess. Saul ends up dying in battle. His son dies too. He did a terrible job of leading. And we see everything becomes a mess because they got out ahead of God and they lost their perspective that they were supposed to be distinct. Paul, or Saul's downfall was arrogance and it led to his demise. See, I think there's a reality here that God shows us through the story of allowing Saul to be their first king. It's this, that if you reject God for something else, God will often give you what you ask for. Like if you say, God, you have a plan for my life. I know you do, but I want this. God, I, I know you, you have this desire for my life, but you know what? Instead, I want that. 
God will often give you what you ask for in hopes that you see it and that it causes you to, to, to turn back, to repent and, and confess that and give that, and follow, and give that to God and, and come and follow him. That, that, that's God's hope. Notice what, what uh, Paul writes in Romans chapter 1. He says this in Romans 1. He said, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they came, became futile in their thinking, and foolish, their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. In, in Romans chapter 1, Paul is saying that, that looking at creation, looking at the way God made the world, we can know that there is a God. There's enough to know there is a God, but there's not enough to be saved without Jesus. And Paul says that when we show God, when we say, God, I don't want what you have for me, I want what I want for myself, God will give us what we want in hopes that it causes us to turn and follow him. And so we, we see this idea that, that, that Israel, they, they wanted something different, and so God gave them what they asked for. And we see that the period of the kings in Israel, remember, this is about 450 years when God rescued them across the Red Sea. The period of the kings in Israel only lasted for about 120 years. King Saul was a disaster. King David was up and down. He had a lot of good, a lot of really bad. King Solomon started off well. The kingdom was great. And then he married 700 women and ended up losing his mind. And the kingdom ends up falling apart. And so we see that from within 120 years, just note to self, don't marry one, right? I mean, just, yeah, one at a time. I mean, seriously, Solomon just, lit, yeah, it's not good. So what we see is the kingdom fell apart and we see this split. And then they end up going into captivity in Babylon. They end up going to captivity in Assyria. And it's just a, a mess. But God wasn't done yet. And so you, you kind of have to wonder, like, at this point in the story, if you know it's bleak and things are bad, like things are not going well, right? Like, like what's going to happen? But you see this echo. If you read the prophets, you see this echo where God begins to say, I'm going to do something. I'm going to send someone. There's a king that's coming. And you see this echo throughout Scripture. And then, after 400 years of silence, one day, a thousand years after King Saul, Roman has taken over Israel. And there's another kingdom in power. And there's a man from Nazareth who begins going from town to town saying this. Matthew 4, 17. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent means to stop. It's like, stop, stop. Stop what you're doing. Because something is happening. Something is happening that is going to force you to make a decision. Jesus is saying something is happening that's going to force you to reevaluate everything you're about. And something is happening that's going to force you to ask yourself to reevaluate everything you know about yourself and about the world and about God. Now imagine for a second, you're a first century Jewish man or woman. You've been living your entire life under the rule of Roman rule. I mean, you're, you're always reminded that Rome is the kingdom you live in. But you read, you grew up reading the Bible. You didn't have Instagram and TikTok in those days. You had the Old Testament. That was your, that was your media of the day. And you remember hearing about this Savior that's one day going to come, this new king that's one day going to come. And then you hear Jesus, you hear rumors of this guy wandering around from town to town saying, the kingdom of heaven is near. You know what that means. You know what he's saying. He's saying that that kingdom that God established in Genesis 1, that kingdom that we messed up in 1 Samuel 8, it's coming back. And so you take notice, and you go, and you listen. But yet when you go, and you hear this man speak, what he says is completely 
backwards of anything you think he would say. You start to hear him say things like that you should love those who hate you. You should love your enemies and those that persecute you. Now, let's be honest. That's not very good advice, is it? Unless something different's going on. So what's going on here? Well, the kingdom of heaven is now here. Let me ask you, when you think of Jesus, when you think of what Jesus taught, what do you think of? Like, what's the first thing that comes to mind? You think of maybe Jesus, the golden rule, right? Right? Love your neighbor as yourself. You, you think of a teaching of Jesus. Did you know that in the book of Matthew alone, Jesus mentions the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God? They're kind of interchangeable. 50 times. So if you get 30 pages of Matthew, about one and a half times per page, Jesus is talking about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. The thing that Jesus talked, to, talked about most was this kingdom of heaven. And so when you think of Jesus, we, we, sh- we should begin to think of the kingdom of heaven because Jesus came to bring this kingdom of heaven. This was the heartbeat of his main mission and message. So what is that? What is this kingdom of heaven? Well, he isn't talking about somewhere you go. He's talking about something that he's bringing here. He's talking about something that, that he's bringing down here. God's original plan for us was to co-rule. God's original plan was for us to, to co-rule this world with him. So Jesus came to bring the kingdom of heaven down here to us. He reestablished the kingdom. Because we couldn't get it on our own. We needed Jesus to come and bring it for us. And now that the king is here, it forces us to reevaluate everything about our lives. It, it forces us to, to encounter Jesus, to stop and look and listen. So I want you to ask yourself, when you think of Jesus... Do you think of Jesus as someone who came and gave his life for you so you can go to heaven? Because that is true. But do you also think of Jesus as someone who came to bring the kingdom of heaven here? So your life starts now. Your life doesn't start someday. The kingdom of heaven is here now. This is the reality that God came to, that Jesus came to bring to establish his kingdom for here now. Heaven is an amazing reality and it's going to be incredible. But the kingdom of heaven is here now, and our call is to co-rule in this kingdom, to transform this place, and to transform our lives, and to transform this community. And you and I have the opportunity to be a part of this kingdom. I mean, notice what the first thing Jesus does in the next verse. Verse 18 of Matthew chapter 4, notice this. He's walking by the Sea of Galilee. He sees two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew's brother. They're fishing. These are fishermen by trade. Verse 19, and he says to them, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Now Luke gives us a little more detail. He actually preached an incredible sermon and then they caught lots and lots of fish and they saw this miracle. And they're like, we're following him. Like that's the guy. Now now imagine you're at your favorite coffee shop that we've been talking about and you're in there sometime and some guy walks in and says, hey you, follow me. What are you going to say? No, you had too much coffee, right? Like, Two shots of espresso is probably enough for you. Like, really? Like, we're not going to just like randomly go, go follow a guy, but they did. They did. What does it mean to follow Jesus? It means a radical reorientation of our lives because the kingdom of God is different. It's different than the world. The kingdom of God is so different. And they left everything behind. They left their, we see James and John left their father. We see they left their businesses. Now, one of the realities about our culture is that we get an allergic reaction when somebody tells us that their religion's going to go take over the world, right? Like, if, you, if somebody comes in and says, my religion is going to take over the world and you should come be a part of my kingdom, like, we're going to, right? We're going to be a little weird about that, especially if there's a credit card number involved, 
right? We're going to be a little hesitant on, on that. But, but notice how Jesus' kingdom took over. Look at this. Just a couple more verses, verse 23. Notice what Jesus did. He went around Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel and the kingdom of healing every disease and every affliction among the people. What did the kingdom of God look like? It looked like teaching and healing. It looked like messages where Jesus says, well, the first is last and the last is first. That the power brokers of this world are actually the ones that serve. If you think you're powerful in this world, you're actually least in the kingdom of God. The ones who are most in the kingdom of God are the poor and the sick and the needy. It was backwards. He says, in my kingdom, what it looks like to assert your reign over someone else is to serve them, especially when it's not in your best interest. And so I want you to notice this. When, when you look at the teachings of Jesus, when, if you have a Bible that the, the letters in your Bible are read, what Jesus is doing is he's trying to get you to look deep in your heart. He wants to expose your deepest fears. He wants to expose your deepest needs because he wants you to take a reevaluating look of your heart and to show you that the kingdom of God is backwards from the kingdom of the world, that the kingdom of God is the one that we were created to live in, and it's the only one with peace and joy and contentment and hope. And that's only found in the, content, in, in the kingdom of God. And so what Jesus wants us to do is he wants us to see what the people in 1 Samuel 8 missed. And it isn't like being about, is it, it isn't about being like the other people. And it isn't about having the power. And it isn't about what you can get. But rather, it's about admitting that we're crummy kings. And that we can't be number one in our own life. And sitting below the leadership and the kingship of Jesus is what leads us to actual freedom and hope and peace. So as we close, as we wrap up our time here, here's a question I want to ask. What kingdom do you want to live in? What's your kingdom? Do you want to live in the kingdom that you were building? Or do you want to live in the kingdom that Jesus brought to you? So I think if we're, if we're real, if we're, if we're realistic to ourselves, we all want to be king like Saul. We, we all have this desire in our hearts where we want to be the king of our own castle and our own kingdom. But we are just like Saul. And we will get out in front of God just like Saul did. And we will lose perspective just like Saul did if we allow ourselves to sit on the throne. Or we can help be co-rulers, co-kings with the king who calls us to join him here on the mission. This week, when you guys go back to work, you guys go back to school, you go back to life, you go back home, each of you are faced with a decision. You've got relationships that you're navigating. You've got that situation at work that you're trying to figure out. You've got that, 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 that issue with, with, with family or, or your neighbor or financially, how you're going to, to figure out how you're going to spend your money. And the question is, which kingdom are you going to live in? Are you going to live in the one that Jesus came to bring? Or are you going to keep trying to build your own? The reality is it's going to have a cost to live in the kingdom that Jesus came to bring. It's not easy. We're going to have to evaluate who we are and reorient our lives around this kingdom. But it's so worth it. One of my favorite scenes in the Chronicles of Narnia is the scene where... Um, Peter, Susan, and, and Lucy are eating it with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver in their house. And Mr. Beaver and Mrs. Beaver starts talking about Aslan. And you can tell Peter and Susan and Lucy had no idea who Aslan was. And they're like, who is Aslan? And Mrs. Mrs. Beaver says, well, Aslan is a lion. The lion. The great lion. Oh, said Susan. I, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? 
I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there is anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else they're just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. So who's your king? Some of you today, it's time to make Jesus your king for the very first time. For for some of others that maybe have, have tried to build our own kingdom, it's time for us to say, Jesus, I recommit my life to you. Please be the king of my life again. But it's going to cost. It's going to have a cost to you. The reality is any leader, any kingdom is going to seem attractive, but in the end, you're going to disappoint, be disappointed. Will Jesus ever disappoint you? No, never. But he isn't safe, but he's, the, he's good, and he's the king. So let's trust him. Would you pray with me?